Hi, I'm Phelan Johnson. And I'm Leah Simone Bowen, and we look at history a bit differently. Have you ever wondered how hundreds of wild horses came to inhabit an island in the Atlantic Ocean? Or what Lord of the Rings and a small town in Manitoba have in common? Or the burning question, did Canada invent the teen drama? The Secret Life of Canada is a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. New episodes available now wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I've been looking forward to talking to Haley Williams from the band Paramore for like five or six years now, but she doesn't do interviews very often. And she's been in the public eye since she was 15, so I don't really blame her. But Haley's here to talk about the new Paramore album. And listen, if you're not as familiar with the band, you're going to find out why to some people they're the most important band of their generation. That's coming up. Plus, when you're an actor and you play a famously tortured artist, what does that do to you, to your psyche, to the work you take on afterwards? Emma Mackey is a British actor. She plays the writer Emily Bronte in a new film. She'll tell you why she'll never be the same again. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. Paramore are a band that mean an awful lot to the people that love them. Like, the other month they came to Toronto, I swear to God, like, I saw people trying to, like, palm their pets to try and get tickets for this thing. It was so hard to get in. But I want to acknowledge that Paramore actually haven't had a big radio, you know, mainstream number one hit. So if you need an introduction, just take a listen to this. Paramore started when Haley Williams was 15 years old. There's this really famous story that the record label tried to sign her by herself, and she said no when she was 15 unless they'd signed the rest of the band. And we're going to get into that. But Haley's 34 years old now, which means 20 years of being in a band trying to figure out whether this is the life she actually wants, 20 years of being a woman in a punk scene that is primarily dominated by men, 20 years of reading articles and comments and tweets critiquing everything about her. Haley doesn't do interviews very often. In fact, the band took a five-year break, and we didn't know whether we'd ever hear from them again. But Paramore have just released their brand new album. It's called This Is Why. I was very grateful to get on Zoom with her. Here's my conversation with Haley Williams from Paramore. How are you? Hi. Oh, I'm great. I'm I'm nervous. I'm just my brain is going in a million directions, but I'm really, I'm good. Thank you for having me. That's a joy to have you. Why are you nervous? Oh, dude, it never gets easier. You could put out a million records and I, I, I think I would hope that I would still have nerves on the millionth album. I like, it's just, it's all of your heart and soul and a, a lot of time and energy that goes into it. And then you just kind of hand it to people to take care of it. So here's hoping that they receive it well. Is it extra nervous because of the break? Like I should say for people, like five years off, uh, mm-hmm. five years, no Paramore record, and now Paramore yep. record. But is, is that extra nervous E? I think so, because, you know, when you're, if you're not paying attention, it could be surprising. But, but, but watching how much the industry can change and, and the world, you know, anyway, culture, whatever, Five years is a really long time, especially if you're, you know, using the Internet as any sort of gauge. So, yeah, a lot has changed. We've changed, you know, a lot, a lot can change in your own life in five years. And I think the, the positive thing is we're all 
you know, as adults, this has been the most, this has been the most incredible time to be at home and to, you know, enter into our thirties, like surrounded by family and community back in Nashville, which is where we've grown up, where we're from. So, yeah, I, I think entering, even just leaving that bubble and going back into the world after five years is also, uh, it's a little nerve wracking. Can you do the why now? Can you, can you tell me why now after five years? Mm. You know, that's a really good question. I Zach says that I just DM'd him on Instagram one day. I mean, we were all quarantined. We hung out a little bit because we were in each other's bubbles, obviously. But Zach's our drummer for people that don't that don't know. We he's like a man of action, you know. So I I I told him, I guess he remembers this. I DM'd him and I was like, I'm ready. And that's all I said. And he was like, All right. I feel like that probably means we're back at it. So next thing we know we're like holed up at this studio in East Nashville, which is kind of like the hip part of town, you know? Yeah. And, um, and we thank God day one, we get in and we write something that surprised us. And I think surprise is, that's the key word because, um, you know, to make things that you're comfortable making and that you, that you, you know, feel good about is one thing, but to really surprise yourself after, you know, 20 years of us writing together is, um, man, it's such a comfort because you're like, oh, all right, I still have some things in me worth exploring. Like there's still more to to figure out. And um, I think that's the best part of being creative. I mean, I, I understand that part. I understand that when you're together 20 years, if you went into the studio and you made a record, uh, you started making songs that sounded like, you know, they, they, they didn't creatively excite you or, or they mm. felt like the old stuff that wouldn't be as fun. It wouldn't keep you going. What I don't yeah. what I don't understand is the I'm ready. What do you, what, <laughs> what where did I'm ready come from? I really missed being in the room with with both Zach and Taylor and like the way that Paramore has sort of been uh, like a catalyst in all of our lives for every type of growth. It doesn't have to be artistic. I think it's kind of been the vehicle in which we, that's how we get to places. It's how we see the world. It's like our lens. And I think I missed that. I was home a lot. I had done two solo records and I think I did those to prove to myself that I could do it and to hell with, you know, whatever people have said about Paramore and me being like, you know, it being a glorified solo act. I wanted to show people that actually me doing a solo thing probably sounds a lot different than Paramore and it did. But then I just missed being in my, like my home, you know, and, and creatively Paramore is my home. And thankfully I wasn't the only one that felt that way. Cause maybe then we wouldn't have, it wouldn't have happened, but all three of us were like, yeah, it feels right. I can, I can hear that. Like the, I don't give a shit what anyone thinks about us. This is who we are. Ness of the record. Cause I think the f- opening line is like, you, you, was it, you, you can take your opinion and you can shove it. Is that the opening line? <laughs> I mean, basically, yes. It, uh, if you have an opinion, maybe you, maybe should, shove you it. should shove it. It's a little yeah. more Canadian than that. It's a little. Yeah, it's a little <laughs> more. It's a little gentler than I said it. Uh, 
<laughs> but am I reading into that, Haley? That like that—that's a—that that felt to me like um, a very intentional opening line. You know. Now that you're saying all this, I'm kind of realizing for the first time that the album opens with that line, and then it closes with um, a song called "Thick Skull," which is the first song that we wrote. It's the one I was telling you. Like we got in, and we were like, "Oh shit!" We were surprised by it. Um, and that song is very much about, it's like a, uh, I'm reflecting on a lot of years of having people's opinions projected on me, uh, the band going through several iterations, just literally just friends going through friendship drama and breaking up and getting back together. And a lot of the times I got the brunt of that. Um, I think it's easy anyway for a lead singer to kind of be, uh, you know, the scapegoat, but especially being a female and kind of coming up in the time that we did, there was just a lot of stuff that I've, that I've held on to that's been really, I think kind of limiting for me. I think I've limited myself because it scares me what people are going to say about the band or about me as, you know, character wise. Like, I don't know, you see people say shit, like it's the Haley Williams show or whatever. And I think I just got to a place and this is where Thick Skull comes from the subject matter of thick skull is like what it like what if all of that was true would it even matter like what if i just called all these folks bluffs you know and when i say these folks it's like anonymous commenters on the internet which sounds insane to give a shit about but that was my formative years you know so it's it's nice to, to hear you talk about you know in context that's how the album starts and then that's also in a way how the album ends I want to leave all of that worry and the care about, you know, what are they going to think about every little move that I make? And am I a good person? Am I a bad person? I just want to like, let that go. That has nothing to do with our creativity. I love that so much that the, the album would begin with like, I don't care about your opinion. You know, you can shove, you can maybe shove it. Maybe. 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 And then... (laughs) And then the and album. Am I like honorary Canadian now? Yeah, you, you made it. Just say sorry a couple of times. And All then right. at the end of the um, at the end of the album, it is this like, well, you know, even if all the things you say about me are true, even if all mm. the things assumptions you make about me are true, I'm still mm. I'm still okay. Like I'm still all right. Yeah. I, I feel yeah. like that comes up somewhere else though. Uh, can we play the song we were going to play? In a single year, I've aged one hundred. Ah. Yeah. My social life. I mean, speaking of Canada, um, that is Paramore and C'est Comme Ça. Uh, Haley Williams of Paramore is my guest. My name is Tom Power. I'm not going to put too much of my stuff on it. Just tell me about that song. Oh, God. First of all, the wonderlust when you're stuck quarantining at home is very serious, especially when a lot of my life has been spent traveling for, you know, my job. And we don't even get to see much, just screen rooms. So... I think I, I couldn't stop thinking about the time we've spent in Paris, also Montreal, 
But this one in particular is just about the process of getting help, getting better, kind of deciding that the status quo or just simply surviving is not enough. And um, I'm very much addicted to a survival narrative. My, my, my story in my own life, the women in my family um, are survivors of, of you know, um, I'm thinking mostly of like domestic assault, emotional and physical uh, and mental abuse. And, you know, I, I am my mother's only child. And she's such a heroine to me. She's so heroic and so brave and smart. And I think on the fl- on the good side, it's like, I want to be like that. On the bad side, I think my mom wants me to have a better life than, than she's ever had, you know? So being addicted to uh, a narrative of survival is quite limiting also. It's very much like if, can, can if you you're only looking... I don't know what that means being addicted to um, a narrative of survival. Can you help, can you help me understand that a bit better? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, so I got home after we made the, or after we toured after laughter and I decided to get help. Uh, I was, I knew I was struggling mentally and it was kind of getting dark and I, I knew it was like time to take it seriously. And I, so I got diagnosed with depression and PTSD and the way that it's been described to me, people who have PTSD, I grew up thinking like, oh, well, that's something for people that have been in combat. Like that's what that is. But I think we all have, whether they're micro or or bigger types of traumas in our daily life, it can be easy to get used to the stress of that. And your body, the cortisol hormones and the way that your body is physically affected, how that manifests. Um, you know, I've had to make a lot of changes in my life to kind of regulate my nervous system and to to slow myself down because I got a lot going on. I, I like doing a lot of things and being involved in a lot of things. But um, sometimes you have to weigh, you know, what's actually good for you. And getting older, you have to do that as well. Like I, I don't want to drink every night and feel like shit in the morning. But sometimes that idea of just being reckless is so romantic yeah. that people stay stuck. Yeah, I know. I know what you mean. I mean, not to make this about me, but I know what you mean. There's a line of the song mm-hmm. that really got me about that. Like, I got diagnosed with panic disorder. I got diagnosed with some anxiety stuff, and I had to try and figure that stuff out too. And yeah. um, getting better is boring. That's one of the lines in the song. Yeah, I felt that so deeply because uh. because when I do get everything together, like when my yeah. sleep is good, when my booze is regulated when I like when I'm not smoking dope when I'm not you know when I'm when I'm sleeping enough when I'm meditating Mm -hmm. when I'm going to therapy when I'm doing all of like the list of things my phone usage all that stuff yeah it's nine o'clock at night and I go like all right well what now I guess I'll read a book and have some tea (laughs) (laughs) it's I know what you're talking about it's so nice like sometimes I'll be doing interviews and I'll talk to someone that, you know, for better, where it's like not in their nature to share or to, uh, or maybe they're trying to be a certain type of buttoned up, you know, but it's so comforting to know that you're not the only one that's going through this stuff. And I think it's gotta be so many more people that maybe don't even realize that they're addicted to these things. Cause I mean, it can come from anything. It can come from like your body being addicted to caffeine and that doing things. It could be the phone. It's just like constant, you know, we're inundated constantly with information and 
And certainly the news is stressful every single day. So yeah, it's taking care of yourself can look very just, you know, you become like a little docile. Yeah. Like part of me is just like, I'm like 50% granny now and i i can't hate it because my body's thinking yeah yeah but that's hard on the road Haley. yeah right now that's all i'm thinking about is like okay we normally i'm in bed by nine when i'm home ever since the pandemic because there was just nothing to do but when we work you know you're playing a show until 11 sometimes later you eat at one in the morning you know you're flipping your whole existence upside down so yeah i'm definitely nervous about that part i got to find balance all over again. Let's listen to another song off the record. Okay. I just want to acknowledge, I'm talking to Haley Williams from Paramore. I want to acknowledge one thing before I ask you about the song. And, and to be honest, I don't think you get enough credit for this. You're a, and far be it for me, I'm no expert. Incredible melody writer. Like, oh. such a gifted oh. melody writer you are. Thank you. That's so great to hear. I love that. I, I always talk about lyrics, you know, which I love. But that means so much. Thank you. Um, and you've uh, always thanks. been a great melody writer. However, can we talk lyrically? Can you tell me about that song? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's never not been this way, but I think when, one of my favorite movies in terms of just social commentary is Lord of the Flies. I just think that, unfortunately, there's something in the human condition that's wired to never be satiated by power. Like it's never enough. Um, And also in history, there's been a lot of men in power that I think maybe they might've had a choice at one point to do the right thing or not. And it just always seems like it goes the latter. Watching like our president at the time, uh, which honestly I refused to call him the entire time he was in office like just be so flippant with his power and this abuse of power was really annoying. And it's not a song just about Trump. You know, this isn't like an, like just an anti Trump song. I think it's like a, it's more about wanting to put another spotlight on abuse of power in general and not thinking it's cool. I guess what it made me, to be honest with you, and, and this is, this. I'll tell you this, this is a pre-deep interview and, and we're not going to talk about anything you don't want to talk about, obviously. Sure. But like, it was hard to, I read the comments you made, I think it was in an interview a couple of weeks ago where you talked about like your your larger experience of being like a 15, 16, 17 year old, 18, 19 year old woman on, yeah. you know, at shows and you had like, I think it was Fat Mike from NoFX making like shitty comments about you and like really yeah. sexualized comments about you. But I didn't think yeah. this, I just think broader 
to to be a, a female artist, to be a woman, especially at that age in that scene, mm-hmm. which again, the punk scene is supposed to be this like incredibly progressive scene, but for such a progressive scene is historically not welcoming to women, people of color, queer people, like, you know, it was hard not to think about the song through that lens when I heard it, you know, Haley. Yeah. I mean, you're not wrong. I think all of those things, like they're cataloged, you know, in my body somewhere. And I think that there's days that I don't even register those things as uh, having really affected me in any big way. And there's other times where it's very visceral. Like when we played when we were young, which was this big, you know, it was like the glorification of the emo subset. And it was a festival, right? It was like a three day festival, which was like punk, pop punk bands Mm -hmm. um, sort of being celebrated with this new audience, which I'll talk about in a second. So so you played this sort of like, I don't want to call it Nostalgia Fest because it wasn't. It's like, it's not Nostalgia Mm -hmm. Fest. It was like an embracing of something there. But go on, go on. Well, we almost said no because we we looked at it as, oh, okay, this is a Nostalgia Festival and we have a new record coming out. We don't don't really want to pay much mind to like the paramour of old because we feel like, you know, we've we've grown from those people, but I do think it was an important thing for us to do. And it was really uh, a perfect place for me to sort of speak on some of the frustrations, but also the hope that, that I think this new generation gives us that like the alternative scene is for everybody. It's meant to be for everybody. And where would really any genre of rock music be without black artists, you know? So I think Watching the scene become more inclusive is really, uh, it's a sweet moment for me. But I found myself viscerally like having, like there was like anger kind of energy, that angsty energy just just tingling all over my skin the whole weekend. And I, I think that's why. Why? I, well, I think I didn't let myself feel vulnerable to the bullshit when I was 16. I had a, a job I wanted to do. I, I wanted to prove Paramore that we were valuable, that we were worth something and that we were here to stay. Cause I really have always believed in the band that way. But um, when you're 16, it's like, there's other hurdles to get over, like getting people to take you seriously. Cause you're young. Um, the fact that there weren't a lot of females in that scene at the time, um, that was another hurdle. Uh, but I, I didn't have time to, to think about that or even strategize my moves around that because we were working, we were, living our dream, you know? Um, so to be 34 and to look back at that person that I was and, and just want to like hug her and protect her and tell her that like, you guys are doing so great and you're doing the best you can. And it's okay if not everyone gets it or that, or everyone likes you, you know, like really wanting to, to show my younger self that, uh, you know, I made it to a stable place and that she was worth it, you know? that that time was worth it. I, I don't know. I, oh, it's interesting on. doing that kind of work, like whether it's in therapy or just in your daily life. It's it's interesting when you pay attention what emotions will spring up. One of the best shows of the year, according to Apple, Amazon and Time, is back for another round. This season, we're diving deep into some of McCartney's most beloved songs. Yesterday, Band on the Run, Hey Jude. And McCartney's favourite song in his entire catalogue, 
here, there, and everywhere. Listen to season two of McCartney A Life in Lyrics on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You say living in prison, I'm already dreaming of how it really blows my mind. We spent a lot of time in the studio, like almost wide eyed, like, how are we still here? This never happens to bands, especially bands that started in the era that we did. I think it's important to keep that in mind for this part of my conversation with Haley Williams that Paramore are and always have been a band. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. You're listening to my conversation with the musician and songwriter Haley Williams from the band Paramore. They have a new album out called This Is Why. And over the past 20 years, they've become sort of a generational band. They've been really influential on folks like Taylor Swift and Olivia Rodrigo and Billie Eilish. And we, and we talk about that a little later on. But I want to set up a scenario for you that might help explain the next part of this interview. So imagine for a second you're 15 years old. You're in a high school band with your buddies. These things almost never work out, right, high school bands. And uh, a record label backs up a truckload of money to your house and says, hey, we want to sign you to our record label, but we only want you. We don't want your buddies. We don't want the band. What would you do? Haley Williams has an interesting response to that. Here's more of our conversation. As much as self-validation and all that stuff is important, Haley, like for people who don't know, like, um, Paramore has like a sizable audience and like you guys did really well when you started out and you did really well really early. One of my favorite things about the band is that you were like you were kind of discovered and then you were offered to be a solo act and then you just said, no, I want to be a band, but I still think I can't get over that you did that when you're 15. I don't think I could tie my shoes when I was 15, much less turn down like a major record labels once, by the way. Or maybe you got to be 15 to do that though, you know? Yeah. Yeah, you're, you, you have this really beautiful arrogance as a teenager. I yeah. think every teenager does. And, yeah. and you're ignorant to any of the rules, right? Um, so I think that's what got me through those early meetings. But we, you know, a lot of people don't know. And to be honest, the timeline is really, it's a very annoying timeline because we were all, it was the early 2000s. People didn't take their phones and cameras everywhere. It was like, you know, we did so much of our early groundwork without any witnesses. And I think um, it's the beautiful part. It's also like the part that I wish I could share the most with newer fans um, and young artists as well. Like I just, we were already a band. We were already kind of playing our school talent show and like writing songs together. And it was, that was my dream. I couldn't have cared less about any of the things that come with it. I was like, Number one, get mm. me out of Mississippi because that's mm. where I was born and, and my life began there. But well, my my life technically began there, but it feels like my life started when we got to Nashville. So by the time I met a bunch of friends at school that played music, that was it. I was like, I'm happy. And I remember telling my family and some people that were at the label, like, you guys don't have to like you can take it or leave it because I am ha like I could go back and play in Taylor's basement with the guys and we'll be fine like we'll just keep writing and doing what we love I'm just 
thankful that it didn't turn anyone off enough because we still, you know, I still had to sign my name on a dotted line, yeah. but I got to bring all my friends along. And, uh, and now we're at the end of that era of that, of what that contract meant for us. And I'm so thankful because had those people not been crazy enough to listen to a 15 year old, then, I, you know, this 34 year old would not have I wouldn't even have the the relationships that I have in my life. So I feel very, very grateful. The thing you said there that I think is worth mentioning is that I would like to say to like newer fans, there's not many artists that have been around this long that have newer fans. The thing, Mm -hmm. the thing that I was talking about earlier was like self-validation is important, but also this new generation has discovered Paramore, whether it be on, on TikTok or just through your, through your, Mm -hmm. through your records. Not only that, I think that people who were listening to you in their early twenties, their relationship has only deepened with you. Mm. And then I see you singing Misery Business with like Billie Eilish at, was it mm-hmm. was the Coachella? Coachella. Yeah, yeah. Coachella. I mean, who was not, not born when that song came out, potentially? Yeah. <laughs> like, I think she was born, but still, it's, you know, she was uh, probably just learning to walk or something. I don't know. It blows, it really blows my mind. We spent a lot of time in the studio, like almost wide eyed. Like, how are we still here? Uh, this never happens to bands, especially bands that started in the era that we did. It's, it's a weird time. That was a, but why are you still here? Oh, um, well, I mean, the simple answer that probably sounds the most cliche is that it's the fans, you know, it's, it's music fans because we just don't, it wouldn't matter. We could put out stuff, but it wouldn't, there'd be no, there'd be no livelihood in it. That's for sure. I think that that would, that would be limiting certainly because they give us, (laughs) they give us the opportunity. They give us the, the, the chance to prove our value to other people that, that then invest their money towards our cause so we can tour yeah. or so we can make a record. So like it's the fans really. But I think beyond that, like to, to be more like to get a little bit more emo about it, uh, it's our, <laughs> you know, uh, I think it's our friendships. I think that Zach and Taylor and I, um, we need music, but, but more than that, we need, each other and in the context of this band to continue to grow as people. It's been such a catalyst for, there's been so many hard lessons we learned that were we not in Paramore, we wouldn't have even come across, you know? So I, I feel like this is my, this is the seat that I have to, to sort of experience the world from. And I am still curious. So we're still going, we're all still curious. We're such um, big fans of you here. And, thank you. And man. thanks for making the time to talk to us. We've been looking forward to it for a while. I love that we finally got to talk. You have such a good voice. Your voice is, I could listen to you on the radio forever. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> hey, come on, man. I'm on after the Opry on the NPR station down there. Okay. Uh, no, but seriously, seriously, though, like big, big fan. Thanks, Haley, for doing this. Uh, nice yeah, to meet you. Thank you so much. Said I was gonna take some flowers to my neighbor 
Tremendous. I know we talked about this, but like tremendous melody writer Haley Williams is. Their new album is called This Is Why. That's a song called Running Out of Time. Paramore are heading out on tour in March. For more information on that, go to paramore.net. So typically when an actor takes on the role of a historical figure, they do a lot of research, right? Like they pour over every book or documentary that's ever been made about them, trying to figure out who they really were so they could inhabit them. But imagine for a moment you are asked to take on one of the most famous writers in the English language and you don't really know and no one really knows anything about them. Emma Mackey is a great actor, and she gets cast as Emily Bronte. Emily Bronte famously wrote the book Wuthering Heights, and she and that book are known and taught all over the world. But we don't actually know a lot about Emily Bronte. For one, she was an incredibly private person. For two, she died when she was just 30 years old. And for three, everything we do know about her was told by her sister Charlotte. And there's a lot of reasons that Charlotte might have – made some stuff up or might have um, glossed over some hardships in Emily's life. So what do you do? Emma Mackey stars as Emily Bronte in the new film, Emily. Uh, I got to talk to her at the Toronto International Film Festival a little while back. And we talked about the truth and fictions of Emily Bronte. And towards the end, Emma Mackey talks to me about how she thinks she's changed forever by what she found out. Here's my conversation with Emma Mackey. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm not too bad. Thanks for asking. Uh, Congratulations on the film. Thank you. Now, how familiar were you with Emily Bronte and Wuthering Heights before this? Not very familiar. I obviously had read the book back back in the day when I was younger. And uh, and I knew of the Brontes. I knew of the family. I knew who they were. But I I hadn't really gotten into the nitty gritty of their mechanisms and how they existed. Um, So it was nice. I knuckled down and read everything I could get my hands on. But in, in a in a good sense, she, Emily Bronte specifically is very elusive. She's called the Sphinx of English literature. That's one of her names. So she's a very was a very private person. So there's not a lot about her, and the tellings that we do have of her are mostly of her sister. So it's it's a a very um, it's not an objective point of view, if that makes sense. Right. Charlotte sister. Bronte wrote of her sister, yes. right, and that's and so- corrected her poems and like posthumously. And Charlotte is an, also an interesting and also a genius, but. That, that those are the only kind of records we have of Emily Bronte or through Charlotte. I mean, you have such an interesting opportunity in taking on this role in that you can, um, if you have a mystery involving a, a person, mm. which we do mm. in Emily Bronte, mm. you can be responsible to an audience member like me for helping unlock some of that mystery. Yes. What what part of that mystery were you interested in, in unlocking? It's a lovely way of putting it, by the way. Um, I... I think the main idea and what Francis really wanted to get at was this idea of authenticity, whatever that means for people. But I think in this sense, it was more just to humanise the Brontes and Emily specifically, who hasn't really had a, we've never really, yeah, fleshed her out properly before. So I think this is a good opportunity for that. It's not a biopic. It's not a strict kind of retelling of her life. It's not a documentary. So Francis used the kind of the basis of, this real family and these real people and this real character and then 
interwove elements of supernatural and the more, the more Wuthering Heights aspects of, of that environment, if that makes sense. So it's a nice kind of collision of the two worlds. Yeah, but what about you? Like, what were you interested in? I mean, you get to inhabit this person. Like, what were you interested in about her? Um, well, I mean, like I said, I wanted to kind of see, all, I wanted to figure out all of the little intricacies about her. And she's a, you know, I, I think we, hopefully we see that there's quite a, an arc throughout the film. We see her go from this very shy, reserved person trying to figure out what her place is and what her role is in the family. And she's very observant and very quietly sort of, uh, in, intrigued by every, everything yeah. and everyone around and her. And sort of outside of the family. And outside. Yeah. And so and so it's nice being that person outside looking in. And then as we gradually move on in the film, she develops her personality and her essence. And I think that's a nice way of doing it, is to kind of figure it out as you go along. And I read a, I read an interview with the director, Francis, and, and, mm. and she talked about how, um, you know, the, the, the decision, as you mentioned, it's not a biopic. There are parts of her uh, story that are fictionalized, or, or at least we don't yes. know yes. whether, like, uh, the, the, one of the big parts of the film is Emily Bronte's romantic relationship yes. with this fella. Mm-hmm. With this fella. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's his name in the it's movie. Like, yeah, this, People the don't fella. know that. It says, I saw his, his actor's name and then that fella. That fella. Yeah. yeah. Um, of course, we don't know if that happened and it's, and no. it's, it's yeah, fictionalized. It's, yeah, of course. When you hear that you are going to be portraying someone real with a fictionalized romantic story. Does that make you reconsider or do you have to process something in order to take it on? This is, you're very, uh, yes. I didn't really know much about it in the beginning. I was sent the, the, the scenes and I auditioned for the part of Emily Bronte and that made a lot of sense for me because I wanted to kind of interpret a literary role. And But then I didn't know any, I didn't know anything about their personal life story. So to me, it could have been fiction. It could have been real. I, I had no idea. And then it was only when I started reading and researching that I realized that that was a fabrication and that was more of a, you know, Frances' imagining of her life and trying to, you know, elevate it for, for this film. But really, I mean, from what we gather, Emily Bronte just liked to walk her dogs and cook. So, and obviously be a genius and write books and poetry. And she wrote in these tiny, tiny Notebooks, and you can see them at the Howarth Museum, the Bronte Parsonage. They wrote so small so that their toy soldiers could read the books. So that just kind of gives you a, a kind of a wow. an inkling of where they were at. Well, can I ask you so, a, yes. a, an acting question? Mm, please. So there's a scene in I don't know anything about acting, and um, there's a scene in and I don't want to spoil anything, mm. but your Emily, the character you play, yeah. the real person you play, has the scene where she wears this mask. Yes. And um, it's this mask belonging to her, her father. Yeah. It's sort of this white... Yeah, it's like a white no mask in a way. It's frightening. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a mask with, devoid of expression. Yes, yes, it has nothing. It's a really neutral mask. They're playing a game. Yeah. The Brontes are playing a yeah. game and they really did this. This is, this is facts. They, they would play the mask game and, and the father would ask them questions and they'd have to guess... They'd have to play characters. It's kind of like yeah. a, a Victorian age guess who with a mask. Um, but the whole idea of that scene, that's really the clincher in the movie, I think, because it's Francis kind of messing with the audience. It's like, we, we don't know if this is a real visitation or if it's Emily pushing the boundaries of how far she can play with her imagination. That's the whole point, is it's supposed to kind of, that's kind of a metaphor that we find throughout the film is this whole mask that Emily yeah. has to wear at certain points. What's that like for you to have to act with that mask on? And I don't mean horrible. physically, but like it, it feels it's like horrible. a great test of acting. Well, yes, and it's also very horrible. Yeah, no, it was awful. It was awful because it was very claustrophobic because you have a mask on stuck to your face and you have to do all this very, you know, well, you don't have to. I chose to do lots of heavy breathing and um, acting, but it was it was it was good. It was three it was like two full days of that of just that. So it was pretty intense. 
But, so you, have to, was, but you have to portray this without yes. any expression on your face whatsoever. Isn't well, that a challenge as an actor? Well, I can do what I want behind the mask. I was a bit like this, but I could, you know, <laughs> I could do what I want behind the mask. Um, anyway, that was great for radio, whatever I just did there. Was Sticking your head up in front of your face, incredible for radio, I find. Yeah, <laughs> Thank you, no, yes. that's it. Um, but you know I'm what I'm expert. saying, right? Like, yeah, yeah. To have it to would, portray no, something to it an was audience. So, it was how exciting. And it's the first time I'd worked with a mask, and, and, I, and I didn't go to drama school, but that's the kind of thing you learn in drama school. And so it felt, I don't know, I, I, I liked the, the challenge of it, definitely. Um, I want to go back to the idea of Emily being an outsider in the family. Yes. You know, I think if you look at it in, in your role in sex education, that's uh, an outsider in, yeah. a, in a social group. Um, Emily is an outsider in her family. And I'm wondering if portraying these outsiders makes you think at all about the relationship between being an outsider and being a creative person. Wow. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. <laughs> Thank you, yes. Um, no, I, yeah, I hadn't thought of it like that, but I, I know what you mean. I, there is... There is probably a, a quite a huge correlation I'd imagine um and I like I, I always like I always have a particular affinity for the quiet observers I like the people who don't talk much and save the talking for the right moment if that makes sense why is that I don't know it's just a trait I like people who don't feel like they need to fill space up with stuff you know what I mean uh, unlike me evidently <laughs> just like da, 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 da. but um Emily has that particular she has this quite there's something unfinished about her it feels like we only kind of just got a taste of what she could have achieved you smiled there when I mentioned the show first, the sex education show. Yeah. And I wasn't surprised because I, I was reading an interview with you before I came in. And you you used words when it came to that show that I hadn't seen people use too often oh, when God. it comes to shows. <laughs> Terrible. No, I'm only joking. <laughs> awful. Uh, awful. No, no. Regretful. No. <laughs> awful. That's horrible. No, you said um, proud and important. Did I? Yeah. Yes. I can. So that tells me that that show means it means something deeper to you than a gig, you know? Well, it's also my first job, and so it's pretty special in that respect because it sets the tone for everything. And and um, you don't have to love it, you don't have to like it, you don't have to agree with it, but I think it just touches upon quite a few things that potentially people felt alone in dealing with, and I and I like that. So did Wuthering Heights. I mean, so did Wuthering Heights yeah, make imagine? people feel um, like class didn't matter as much, that maybe yeah. it, it poked fun at a certain aristocratic class but yeah, but it's also it just t- it just took it to a new level, and and I feel like the older I get, the harder it is to read Wuthering Heights. I don't know. I feel like it was easier when I was younger to read Wuthering Heights. I don't know if that's a, a common thing, but I think it's one of those books that just needs to be experienced as yeah. opposed to overly analysed, which we all do in school with this, you know, because it's a a classic. But I don't know where I'm going with that. <laughs> can, I, can, I, can, can, can I tell you but something I was, else that I mean, yes, I, I saw another parallel between the Sex Education Show and and the Emily film, right? Um, Me. <laughs> you got the presence it. of me. You got it. Turns out you were in both. I couldn't tell from oh the past, but turns out. Yeah. Well, I have no questions now. That was my last one. I um, there's a scene. I think it's the beginning of Sex Education mm. where um, one of the characters asks your character what they're into. Do you yeah. remember? Do you remember the answer? To, what was it? Uh, yeah, complex female characters. Is complex that, is female that characters. Yeah. I was reading this like um, this. Study. My mother was an English teacher. Oh, great. So this um, study guide to mm-hmm. Wuthering Heights last night, getting ready for this. Interesting. And um, bit of homework. Uh, yeah, just doing a little bit of homework, just but still not doing the full homework. Yeah, yeah. Still just, just reading the just, study guides. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> still now. Still cheating. <laughs> <In adulthood. laughs> 35, cheating. It said, mm. Wuthering Heights presents an opportunity 
to teach about, and I'm not joking around, it said strong, but complex female, female characters. characters. So at this stage in your career, like, what does that phrase mean to you? What does that expression mean to you? Oh. It's a big one, I know. Well, yeah. I mean, these are, these are like not chilled questions. Sorry. <laughs> this is so, yeah, I mean, it's fine. <laughs> it's your job. I got another You're, card with, I can ask you about balloon yeah, colors yeah, if you want. Oh, please do, yes. Okay, I'll My favorite color down. is blue. Uh -huh. um, no, I, what do you, well, I mean, it's, it's obviously important. I don't want to play uninteresting people, but I also, I, I, there aren't really, I don't really have a, a, a list of, you know, uh, Qualities that you're looking qualities for. Qualities that I'm looking for necessarily. In really? A no. No, because it just has to make sense for where I'm at. It's the story that's the most important to me. The script, I mean. This, I mean, this very well may be me overthinking everything. Oh, you think? <laughs> this whole interview has been you overthinking. And I'm like, what am I doing? <laughs> you're, listen, you're, you're killing it. And the, I, I understand more about why you took on the role and a little bit in the role. But I have to imagine... <laughs> No, you're nervous. No. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm just... You have to imagine. Tell me. Okay, I will. Hmm. Um, when you play a character who achieved great things creatively, hmm. yet wasn't appreciated in her time, that you probably carry something with you from that role into your own creative life going forward. Yes, 100%. It's impossible to leave unscathed from any role, but specifically from that kind of role. Yes, definitely. But that's why I couldn't, it was really a no-brainer when the script came along because it was so, I, I said she's unfinished, Emily, because I, in terms of her life, I feel like there was so much she could have done. But there's something quite powerful about working her whole life at, again, curating things in her brain and filling her brain with knowledge and literature and, and words and then creating this this one book as her legacy it's pretty incredible but but i in that, in that same respect the playing whole characters do, do you know what i mean having a whole palette of color colors to explore emily had that and that's why it was a no brainer because i could it was light and dark and funny and atrociously sad and it had all of it had all of the things Held all of the things, right. so it was a. It's a joy. That's all you could ever ask for in a part or in a script or in a you know in a movie. That's that's what we do. So when you get given that chance and you get to just run free with it, it's pretty amazing. It, it, to me, it made me think a lot about the importance of just making making your work. Like, and I, and I read this interview with you where you said something like, uh, "I think you said I'd you'd have to be a sociopath to want to be a celebrity." <laughs> and but I, I don't yes. know. Yeah. But it, what to me that did was it delineated <laughs> the world between making stuff. Yeah. And getting your picture taken for making stuff. Yeah. And Emily Bronte just made stuff. She just made stuff. Do you know what I mean? So that, yeah, that... she just made stuff and she made stuff, you know, they all had to write under pseudonyms and, you know, there are lots of elements in the film and people watch it that aren't real, but that's that's why it's kind of, it's even more heartbreaking because Francis gives a, a second lease of life to her and gives her a full life in this film that potentially she didn't have and, a, and a, an element of celebration that potentially she wouldn't have had and an element of respect of from her peers that she wouldn't have had necessarily at the time. And I think that's a really, it's like a thank you in a way. I think that's what Francis is trying to do. Is, but that's what made what me mean? wonder, are you, are you, like, do you carry that? that? That's what I was really wondering. Like, do you carry from Emily who just made stuff and didn't worry about it too much about getting a picture taken mm. for making stuff? Well, of course. <laughs> not everybody is. Well, well, fine. No, no, I know not everyone is, but I, I mean, I, um, 
course, it's about making things and it has to be about crafting things. And I just am at this point now where I want to fill my brain with things. Uh, and if we want to make a parallel with Emily, then great. That that's, I want to fill my brain and I want to experience as much as possible in order to make the best things possible and make things that are going to last through the ages, not just going to be out for a week and then forgotten the next week because something else has come along. That's in the same format and written in the same algorithm and in the same way because it destroys everything. And now, and now you've got me talking. That's but lovely. now we're at the yeah. point of no return. And I feel like these films are important. Emily is important. TIFF is important. Independent cinema is important. Yeah. And, I, and, and it, it's just like it, we're like hanging on by a thread. But I feel like now is a, a, hopefully another time in the cycle of cinema and history and art or wherever where people are going to... New shoots are going to grow and we're going to start getting interested in local independent cinema where people are actually making stuff that is important and... I just repeated the same no, words. No, no. And in but the, you know what I mean? In just, the same yeah. way that Wuthering yeah. Heights, I mean, you, hundreds of years later, we're still talking about art. You know, yeah. we're talking about this one piece of art. From uh, this darkened room. Fa- favorite color? <laughs> I'm only joking. <laughs> Lovely to meet you. Lovely to meet you. Thank, thank, thank you. you so much for coming in. <laughs> the uh, TikTok of that weirdly did really well. Like, I'm not a big TikTok dude because I'm 35, but uh, it did do very well. And if you want to see that, I believe my TikTok name is Thomas J. Power on on TikTok. That's my conversation with Emma Mackey, who plays Emily Bronte in the new film, Emily. And that film is out now. That is it for the show today. Uh, thanks a lot for listening. Again, as always, to the end of a podcast. I I, I can't believe it. Um, if you want to get in touch with me, it's easy. It's q at cbc.ca is the best way to reach me. Uh, or on Instagram, I'm at Tom Joe Power. Tomorrow on the show, Rebecca Black will be here to talk about experiencing... I mean, being 13 years old and having a bunch of grown-up entertainers and comedians mock you relentlessly for your song, Friday. Remember that song? Friday, Friday, you want to get down on Friday. Uh, she'll be here to talk to you a little bit about taking her art back, making a decision to be in the music industry after going through what she went through, um, and finally making a debut album. We'll see you then. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.